Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily Lamb and this is the Scammers episode. Uh, So today on the show we are going to talk a little bit about the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, It's been going on for the last two weeks. I didn't cover it last last week but I think that it's good just to get some updates on what's going on there. Um, I'm not sure when the verdict is going to come out but I would say that we probably have a little while. Um, Then we're going to talk about gun control and we're going to talk about Joe Biden's new policy initiative that he just announced. Um, And we're going to talk about some of the basics around that and also why he's going in that policy direction. And then we're going to talk about probably one of my favorite political stories um, that I've read in the past couple of months. It's very, very important to me. Um, We're going to talk about the RNC and Donald Trump scamming his supporters out of millions of dollars. Just buckle up for this one because it's a great story. Um, I'm very excited about it. And then in COVID Corner, we're going to talk about some controversial new um, ideas around COVID, including vaccine passports and mandatory vaccinations for college students. Um, And as a college student, I have some takes, uh, especially at GW. Um, So we're going to get into all of that. It's going to be a really good time. We might chat about Taylor Swift. We may not. We'll see what happens. Um, So anyway... First segment today, talking about the Derek Chauvin trial. So for those of you who are not paying attention to the news or maybe have had your head in the mud for the past full year, uh, Derek Chauvin is the police officer that murdered George Floyd, um, and that was kind of the impetus for all of the protests that happened over the summer um, and kind of all of the racial unrest and you know, kind of that entire situation that happened over the summer, while there was like a lot of killings that happened in that same time frame, the George Floyd story was the one that really kind of pushed everyone over the edge um, because of this video that came out of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck for over nine minutes um, and just like an extremely long time. And he ultimately died from that. So this trial, which again is almost a full year later, this event happened in May, which when I was rereading some details about this case uh, to prepare for the show today, I could not believe that it was, it's almost been a full year since this happened. It seems like it was a much, much longer time ago. Um, I guess, you know, a lot has happened in the last year with COVID and everything else. Um, so it's it very interesting to see where we've been and where we're going and where we're at in terms of racial justice, uh, considering that we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's killing. So anyway, we're on week two of the trial right now. And basically what the debate is between the prosecution and the defense, uh, the prosecution is trying to argue that uh, basically that George Floyd would still be alive if not for the unnecessary amount of violence that Derek Chauvin um, perpetuated. Um, And what the defense is trying to argue is that there were pre-existing conditions and it would have been, you know, if if he had not been, you know, on drugs or if he did not have these other uh, underlying conditions, he would still be alive despite the violence that he perpetrated. And they're also trying to argue in some situations that the violence was justified um, so he can't be held accountable for the fact that he died because it was necessary for the police to exert that level of violence. And so um, over the past two weeks, they've had a lot of different witnesses and a lot of different experts uh, come in and talk about kind of whether or not, you know, what what ultimately killed George Floyd. Was it these pre-existing conditions or was it the amount of, um, like, you know, the amount of, of violence that Chauvin perpetrated? So it's what's been really interesting for me. There's two. There's two things. One that seems very damning, is that an expert medical witness basically said explicitly that a person in good health would have died from the restraint placed on Floyd. That's like a direct quote, which seems extremely damning for the defense. That medical experts are basically saying he died from asphyxiation, and if he were in good health, then he wouldn't. Then he still would have died. Um, that's an ex- extremely important point because there's there's that one part of the defense's argument that if he was in good health, he wouldn't have died. But here we are seeing experts say that, yes, even if he was in good health, there's n- he, he still would have died from the amount of, you know, violence perpetrated. And then the other part of the argument, which is the fact that... Um, 
you know, he was just, he was justified in that level of violence. Um, the chief of police from the area denounced, basically, as a witness, basically denounced Chauvin and said, no, there is no situation in which this level of violence is ever acceptable. Uh, there is no situation in which it could be justified. Which is really important because I think what we talked about a lot in terms of racial justice and in terms of police brutality is the police protect their own. And they're not going to, you know, put their put their head out, you know, they're not going to go out on a limb to, you know, defend maybe the regular people because they want to be protected by that, by the other police officers and they expect that defense in return. So the fact that we see the chief of police doing this denunciation and basically saying, no, there is no way that this level of violence is justified is really, really important. And it's extremely notable. Uh, and, you know, we can we can get into what his motivations were. And I'm going to talk a, bit, a little bit about that. But I do think that it's important that they didn't continue the same thought process. There's OK, so there's two ways that we can think about this. We can be more positive and we can say the chief of police actually saw the video saw the body camera footage and said, no, this is the wrong procedure. This is the wrong thing to do. Derek Chauvin did the wrong thing and he deserves to be convicted. Or, as some people might argue, um, he's the chief of police saw all of the energy around these protests and saw all of the anger that happened because of it. I mean, it was months and months of protests and violence that happened after, um, after these killings. You know, be, they, they saw all this violence and maybe the chief of police said, okay, we need to do something to make sure that violence does not continue to happen. We need to, in a way, kind of turn, this is the wrong word, but turn Chauvin into a martyr so that we can say, oh, look, we've done something about racial justice. We've done something about police brutality. We've put this killer behind bars. Now let's continue all these practices that we've already been doing. So I, I think that it's, it's important, it's important to look at these things with like a grain of salt, because I, again, I do think that it's really, really important that he made the statement that was so strong and so in support of the prosecution, um, and again, kind of decimates the, the, the defense's arguments that it wasn't, uh, that it was a legitimate use of force that he was able, that he used, because we had literal experts in the policing community say no. This is not the amount of force that is ever justified. He already was in handcuffs. There was no reason to be on his neck for nine minutes, etc. So I think that that's, it, that's important. That is very clearly, very obviously a very important thing that was said. And now that's all on the record. Um, and this man, he, I mean, Chauvin did kill a man. That is, that is what happened in my personal opinion and I expect in the opinion of the jury. Um, but what's more important than this one particular case is what happens moving forward. So is this going to be the beginning of a pattern of police being held accountable for police brutality and police violence and police killing of black people? Is this kind of the beginning of the end of the, like the band of brothers mentality and are people going to, you know, are police officers going to stop looking out for each other necessarily and start looking out for the public and for the greater good? I don't know because we've already seen so many other police killings since, you know, this trial even started. So we see this pattern of police brutality continuing around the country um, and we don't see that many other police officers being held accountable necessarily. So I guess depending on the results of this trial, this trial is one thing, but what ha what's more important is is its impact on the rest of the rest of the country and trying to determine whether or not it's really going to have an impact. Um, and I I say this at the end of every segment or during every segment, but like politics and things like this, they always are changing and they're always influenced by a million other factors and especially you know criminal justice issues like this. Um, or they're really, they're, they, they're influenced by society, they're influenced by the law, they're influenced by politics. Um, so it's, it's really hard to nail down what the singular impact of an event like this is going to be. Um, but I do think that it's a step in the right direction, right? Because anybody, you know, my, anybody who's held accountable 
for their actions when they do something wrong, that's a good thing. That means that the criminal justice system is working the way that it's supposed to, um, as opposed to, you know, working in favor of the police. However, one win does not necess necessitate a pattern of wins, um, and it does not get to the root issue of police brutality, which is racial bias and this extreme influence on violence and the fact that police officers aren't trained well enough um, and all of these other varying issues. So, so will this one situation lead to, you know, a, a reckoning of these systemic issues or will it just kind of be a, oh, well, they got one win, let's just move on and pretend that they don't notice that we're continuing to perpetrate all of these bad patterns. Um, and I think that's going to be really important to watch and see. And of course, after the trial ends, uh, one way or the other, of course, if they don't choose, if the jury does not choose to convict, uh, I think that it's going to be very bad. I think that there's going to be a lot of violence and a lot of unrest. Um, I think personally, because the trial is so cut and dry, it really shouldn't be. I don't even think it should have dragged on this long, but um, it will be very interesting to see how this all shakes out um, and how it influences policing and how it influences, you know, racial unrest and racial justice in the country. So I just wanted to do a really brief overview because the trial is happening and it seems really important to talk about. Um, but of course, we don't know the outcome of the trial yet, and I will probably talk about it more in future episodes. Moving on, we're going to talk about um, Joe Biden's gun control legislation that he literally just introduced. Uh, so last week, I talked a lot about his infrastructure plan that he just announced, the American Jobs Plan. Um, and as you all heard, I am a very big fan of the infrastructure plan big infrastructure person. I love trains. I got to take a train this weekend, which is very fun. Um, and the plan itself is great because it includes a lot of other different ideas that aren't, you know, necessarily the trains and roads and bridges, but also includes childcare and includes, um, you know, things like broadband infrastructure and research and development. Um, and all those things are really important to making, creating new jobs, um, to help like revitalize the economy. But of course that piece of legislation I introduced last week and that's going to be working its way through Congress like all summer, that it's not something that we're going to be necessarily dealing with anytime soon. But I think it's really interesting, kind of like I talked about last week in terms of what Joe Biden's plans are with legislation that is more forward looking and legislation that is more present looking, you know? So what Joe Biden announced today is something that is very present, very um, kind of right here, right now in terms of policy. So he introduced a whole package of gun control legislation. Um, so it's like this large package of executive actions um, around gun control and kind of decreasing access to illegal weapons and things like that. Um, we're all very, very important pieces of legislation. And the two interesting political, I mean, there's obviously tons of political implications, but two interesting political implications. One is that um, he said that he was going to take these actions on his, quote, first day in office. And of course, that did not happen. And we're nearing, I think, like the 80th, 90th day of the presidency. Um, so it's, it's interesting that he's now bringing this package up in terms of the fact that there were so many different violent mass shootings that happened over the past couple of weeks. Um, and so now it's like this great imperative to introduce this legislation, even though he said he was going to do it earlier on. And of course, you know, we had he had the COVID package to deal with first, so he chose to spend most of his time doing that emergency relief. Um, but at the same time, you know, so he is following through on his campaign promises to uh, do a lot more work around gun control legislation. But at the same time, of course, he did not do that on his first day in office. Um, and a lot of this legislation that he's introducing, there's only so many different domestic policy things you can think about at one time. Um, of course, because he only has so much political clout and he spent a lot of his political clout in Congress trying to get the COVID relief bill passed. And now he's spending a lot of that clout trying to get this infrastructure um, bill passed. So it makes sense that he maybe paused a little bit on gun control. But at the same time, we've got this hundredth day marker coming up like so soon. Like it's just, it's raring, it's right on its way. Um, and Every, he knows exactly that people, everyone, every single person 
every news outlet, every congressperson is going to be saying, what did Joe Biden actually accomplish in the first hundred days? What did he say that he was going to accomplish in the first hundred days? And what did he actually do? And I think he's really feeling that pressure. And so he's making sure that he introduces all this legislation that even if it's not getting passed necessarily immediately, he is doing the groundwork to say, okay, I did not pass this gun control legislation, but here it is in Congress. It's on the table. It's ready to go. I passed the COVID relief package. I did X, Y, Z. Um, so he really wants to make sure that his resume is very built up by that 100th day. Because the important thing about the first 100 days is you, I mean, it's a little bit of like, I mean, maybe not in this presidency, but I guess in other presidencies, that first 100 days is a little bit of a, uh, like a honeymoon. Like, the opposition party is maybe going to let you get a win because you just started your job. Now that you're 100 days in, they're like, you're, you know, we're going to take the training wheels off, maybe, quote unquote. I mean, again, I don't necessarily think that maybe that's accurate for this presidency because of polarization and the fact that the Republican Party doesn't like to share. Um, They're not very, whatever. I have so many issues. Anyway, but um, at the same time, Maybe the, you know, the people on the, the far left at the same time are saying, oh, well, you know, he, he needed 100 days to get going, get this COVID, COVID relief bill passed. After that 100th day, it's like the honeymoon period is over. It's, you know, gloves off. It's like, and midterms also starting, of course, right after that is like all gets very more polarized and more political very, very fast. So he's only got a couple more weeks really to get this legislation through um, for himself to actually get through the policy initiatives that he wants to get through, and also for the Democratic Party so that they have a strong resume to be running on in the midterms. Um, and of course, in Biden's theoretical re-election campaign in 2024, which we will talk about this later, but if he runs, it's going to be wild. Anyway, um, so that kind of like political implications first. It's clear that you know, Biden is now saying, all right, let's address the here and now issues. What's going on right now? What are things that we can do to fix those issues? So I'm not going to go through like all of the details of the package, but some of the interesting ones, um, he's, you know, doing some executive orders, uh, which is very interesting rather than trying to get legislation through Congress. Um, Again, as I said, he's, in my opinion, he spent a lot of his political clout in Congress trying to get through these like major you know, economic, you know, basically New Deal packages through Congress. Um, And so a lot of these, like, not necessarily smaller things, but these smaller packages, he maybe doesn't have the capacity to do it in Congress um, and do it legislatively. So he's going to do it in whatever way he knows how. And we talked about this um, a couple weeks ago, but talking about, like, the unitary executive theory and whether or not um, Biden should pass things unilaterally. Uh, And with things like COVID relief, it was such a huge package that there's no way that he could have gotten away with doing it necessarily unilaterally. Um, But, you know, smaller pieces of legislation um, like these, where it's just kind of limited to one concept, one idea, rather than like the sweeping economic reform, I think that those are things that he can kind of get away with doing through executive order, which is, you know, it's it's a very um, important topic. And then also, you know, he's he's naming people, He you know, he's still in the process of filling up that cabinet and getting all of those appointed positions filled. Um, and some of those appointed positions necessarily like directly have to do with gun control. So he's able to do those things because one of his powers, obviously, as president is to put people into those appointed positions. So, uh, you know, he has a significant amount of authority in who he chooses. And those choices obviously have a large impact on uh, you know, the way that that policy is getting formulated and the way that the messaging around that policy is getting formulated, obviously, because the federal government is a huge bureaucracy. So some important components of the legislation. One is that there's new rules on firearms that are assembled at home. So it's going to be harder to kind of like get the pieces to assemble a new firearm that doesn't have a serial number and then kind of can't be tracked, which hopefully, you know, will limit the amount of illegal firearms that are being built. Of course, we know that like a big, you know, the bigger issue um, is background checks and um, people getting legal guns and then using those legal guns for, you know, killing people. Um, And of course, the Background Check Act 
forget exactly what it's called or what its number is, that made it through Congress last um, in the last Congress, or made it through the House in the last Congress, and then sat on Mitch McConnell's desk because Mitch McConnell doesn't actually care about the American people, as we've discussed at nauseum. Regardless, it sat on his desk, it never got a vote. So part of this package also is bringing up the Background Check Act um, and getting that through Congress again, including some of these important pieces of um, legislation. So as we know, it's 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 not a matter of, you know, as some people will scream and shout that it is, you know, it's limiting your Second Amendment rights. Like, part of the Second Amendment is well-regulated. So, you know, it's regulations, which are generally a good thing. So stopping bad people from getting guns is a good thing. And stopping people from being able to build their own guns in their house that can't be, you know, really tracked to to the person is also not a good thing because it's just going to open the door for so much more violence. But so those are two important pieces. Um, again, as I was talking about with appointments, um, Joe Biden named David Chipman um, to be the chairman, uh, I think it's chairman, of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, which seems like an extremely difficult job, not a job that I personally would like. Um, but it's really important to note that David Chipman actually was a senior advisor for a gun control group. Um, that was run by Gabby Giffords, who, um, as you might know, you know, was almost in a fatal shooting accident. Not accident. She, she was shot and almost killed. Um, and so it's really significant that Joe Biden chose an anti-gun advocate to lead up this organization. Um, and it's clearly showing that he has this agenda and he's not going to choose someone who's going to be in the pocket of the NRA. Um and I think that, yeah, that's really, really important. And obviously it's going to be a huge fight to to get this person through Congress because the Senate, the Republican senators are going to say, well, this is clearly a, you know, you know, a political appointee and he's going to do all these anti-gun things that we don't want because we're getting paid by the NRA. I don't know exactly how that's going to work out um, and whether they're actually going to be able to get him through Congress. But I do think that obviously they're, you know, they, 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 when you're when you're appointing people to those like political appointee positions, it's like really important that you don't have a lot of losses with those people. Um, and they already had Neera Tandon, who obviously like did not get through um, the Senate. And like they, you know, that you you can have one bad choose choice, but when you're in the executive branch, you really don't want to have more than that because it looks really bad for your legitimacy and you're able to your ability to negotiate with the Senate and work with the Senate. Um, so Biden is clearly going out on a limb, choosing someone who's like can be seen as semi-controversial um, because of his commitment to you know anti-gun you know advocacy, um, but. I mean, I think personally, like, as a as a idea, as, like, a show of faith, I think that this is a really important idea because um, it, it, could, it does show, like, okay, we're, I know that I didn't start doing this on the first day of my term, but here's the legislation I'm presenting and here's the person I'm appointing to work in this office for the rest of my term. He's someone who's also anti-gun. We're going to work together to, to get all of this legislation passed. So I do think the fact, even though it's going to be a difficult fight to get him through the Senate, I think that it's a really good pick uh, and it's really important that he made that decision as opposed to choosing someone who's like neutral on the issue or choosing someone who like even has any like slight ties to the NRA because that's just not going to end well for liberals or leftists who kind of fall, you know, I think it's one issue that people on the left kind of all agree on um, versus, you know, issues like infrastructure and healthcare and taxes and all that stuff where people who are on the far left and people who are on the, you know, center left kind of differ. So um, in terms of an issue that unifies the Democratic Party, I would say that gun, gun control is really one of them. Um, and that is kind of like what I talked about earlier in terms of, you know, Joe Biden wants a really strong resume by the end of his first 100 days for the Democrats to campaign on. And gun control is a really good thing for, like, most Democrats to campaign on. Obviously not in rural areas and blah, blah, blah. But um, the majority of Democrats can say, yes, I, you know, the the, Repu the Democratic Party did this legislation around gun control. Um, 
And because gun control, especially universal background checks, are like a very popular policy, that is something that is going to be a very good win for the Democrats for the midterm. So hopefully that all works out. Um, and the other really important piece of this um, of this legislation uh, is that rather than focusing on like the you know maybe more you know newsworthy front page stories of the mass shootings that have happened over the past couple weeks, um, Biden has been focusing more on like day to day gun violence, so shootings that only kill or injure you know one or two people, um, and. Well, that might seem like, to me, it seems slightly counterintuitive, but then I actually looked at the numbers, um, and mass shootings occur a lot more infrequently, um, and even though they kill more people, the amount of people that are just killed by a gun on a regular day is much higher. So, thinking about this specifically in D.C., over the weekend, there was three individuals who were killed by fatal shootings, two of them in one shooting and one of them in another, and this all happened in, like, one night, Um, and specifically in D.C., this has caused a, like a pretty rapid, uh, you know, increase in the homicide rate. And that's not happening in like the, you know, the rich white parts of DC. It's happening in the areas that are poor and a lot of the areas that are where people of color are living. Um, and so this issue of day-to-day individual gun violence is something that affects communities of color a lot more than it's affecting white communities. Um, so that's really important that Joe Biden focuses on this issue. He's been criticized for, you know, his his stance on racial issues before, and he's made a lot of bad slip-ups, much like the time that he said that white kids, or excuse me, he said that, you know, rich kids are just as smart as black kids. That was bad, and he's made a lot of those, like, faux pas um, and, like, explicitly racist um actions in the past. So it's very interesting that he's choosing to focus his gun control legislation, not around what's more sensational, which is those mass shootings, but around issues that are directly affecting marginalized and oppressed communities. So uh, obviously, like this legislation package, like just got announced, so we can't really um, see exactly what the reaction is going to be from those communities. Um, But I do think that it's, it's, it's it's important to me that he's not, um, you know, he's not, again, like, he's not looking to um, advocate for those sensational issues, um, those things that are on the front page stories that are going to get him on the front page, but actually, like, looking at how are people truly affected by guns on a day-to-day basis, and how can we help those people? Um, and to be honest, I think that that's, that's a good thing for, for public service, because it's not saying, oh, I'm going to solve mass shootings, it's saying I'm going to help the individual person, um, and hopefully that will kind of trickle into stopping mass shootings from happening, uh, which obviously we can't ignore mass shootings because they happen all the time, um, but if we can get the homicide rate down from those individual shootings, it's going to make communities safer, it's going to make individual people safer, it's going to make, you know, the country safer as, as a whole. Um, so I think that's very interesting and very important to talk about. So, yeah. Again, like I said, this is important. It's important politically, um, and it's important because it's part of his campaign promises, and it's one of his big issues. And again, it's an extremely popular piece of legislation. Is like, yes, there is a small group of people that are very angry about someone taking away their fictional guns. But what's, you know, it's, it's like a very broadly popular policy. And again, Joe Biden really wants to beef up that resume and he wants something to show for his first hundred days beyond just the COVID relief package. Um, And he wants to be able to tout a lot of good achievements on a domestic level. Again, because with midterms coming up um, and with a 50-50 Senate, it's it's and losing seats in the House during um, the 2020 general election, it is going to be a tough, a tough midterms um, and I've talked about this before, but, you know, history does not look favorably upon the um, party that holds all three of the, you know, the House, the Senate, and the presidency during midterms. So we really just want to make sure that they're keeping 
control of the Senate because even though COVID might be over by the midterms, there is going to be a lot more legislation that the Biden administration is going to want to pass. And if they even have a 49-51 minority in the Senate, there is just no way that the Democrats are going to be getting any more legislation through. So that's kind of my my little spiel on gun control. Very interesting. And again, blah, 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 blah. We'll see how it ends up. We'll see how it goes. We'll see what the public opinion is on it. But again, as I said, gun control is a very popular legislative agenda. And again, as I said, not only is it popular like on the center right um, and the left, but it's also pretty popular on the far left and the center left. So uh, I think that people are going to be very happy that he's choosing this as a policy initiative. Um for the next couple of weeks so the next segment this is as i said earlier in the show this is maybe my favorite story that i've covered i literally was cackling sitting there reading this new york times article just i mean it's it's unfortunate that people lost money and i'm sorry about that it's just as someone who's who's worked on campaigns, who spends a lot of time thinking about and reading about and just generally getting way too invested in campaigns, this is such an insane story that they that this campaign let this happen because oof, oh my god, it's so bad. Anyway. So, this is also a good choice for insane political story of the week, but I wanted to spend more time on it, so here we are. So basically, this story Um, revolves around the RNC and the Trump campaign scamming their supporters out of literal millions of dollars. So there are reports that there was this New York Times article that just came out, um, and these reports have been coming out over over the past several months, but they kind of just all got consolidated into one place. Um, But basically reports that the Trump campaign was running a scheme to boost revenues, and it basically resulted in the Trump campaign having to refund 10% of the money that they fundraised throughout the campaign. So for those of you who don't know, like during the um, during the campaign, the Biden camp was super, super out fundraising the Trump campaign. Like they were just making so much more money than the Trumps. Um, and Trump was needed, needed a lot more money to stay afloat. Um, and so that was kind of where this story came from is the RNC seeing, oh my gosh, We do not have enough money to support this campaign until the end. So what they did, basically, a little bit more background information. Um, Campaigns, um, Democratic campaigns and Republican campaigns use different fundraising softwares. Um, The the Democratic platform is called Act Blue, and the Republican platform is called Win Red, which is very, it's funny to me that I didn't even know that the Democrats had this platform because I think about Act Blue all the time because, again, like, I, I've donated through Act Blue, I use Act Blue, whatever, um, and I didn't even know that the Republicans had this platform, which is hilarious, just shows how little I know about Republican campaigning, which I'm working on. But anyway, um, so when they, when they set up the page for donations, they had the opportunity to put a little box that says, you know, implement recurring donations um, every month. And what they did, and they put that box on the page, and they pre-checked it. So when people were going through and making donations, they didn't notice the box that was pre-checked to make it a recurring monthly or weekly donation, and they just submitted their donation. And some people were submitting like $500,000 donations, And then they were making that a recurring monthly payment. So they were making a $500 donation to the Trump campaign every single month. And people didn't realize it until they looked at their bank account and saw that WinRed was taking money from them out of their bank account every single month. And that's, that's insane. That's an insane story. So it's, it's, uh, I can't even get over it because they had to so the again if you don't know like there's a legal limit on the amount that an individual can give to a campaign in a single um in a single campaign cycle so when you're making a thousand dollar donation every month you go over that limit pretty dang fast and you have to you know refund the campaign legally has to refund that money 
And, you know, this happens with the, it happened with the Democratic campaign, too. So occasionally someone would accidentally donate too much money and then they would have to refund that money. But when you look to the numbers, um, $64.3 million in refunds by the Trump campaign versus $5.6 million by Biden. That is, I, I read the statistics, it's like 10% of the money that the Trump campaign raised. They had to refund because those people were going over their limits or because they were requesting refunds because they only authorized a $500 payment and they didn't mean to donate $500 every single month. Like, how how insane is that? It's just literally wild. And so I want to read some of these boxes to you that they were putting on the... Um, on the website that people didn't notice. So obviously the the first one was just make a monthly recurring donation, left that check, sometimes you didn't see it, and you would just you would continue through. There was also boxes that said, let's break a fundraising record on President Trump's birthday. Join now. And then in lighter shade text, smaller under it, it says, this additional donation will process on 614. So it was like, they're just going to, like, leave this little box there, keep it checked, and not make it clear that checking this box is going to take more money from your bank account and just authorize the bank account to take it. And, like, yes, they're, like, bright yellow boxes, but it's so easy when you're just making a donation to, like, totally miss those kinds of things. Um, and especially when they're hidden like this, it's even crazier. So there's another one, you know, make this a weekly recurring donation until eleven three. Imagine making a $500 donation in, like, August and not noticing a box that makes it a weekly recurring donation until election day. Oh my god. It's just absolutely insane to me. But then, okay, here's another one. President Trump, I debate Joe Biden on September 29th and I need to know that I have your support. Join the Trump camp, join the Trump cash blitz now. And in a lighter, smaller shade under it, it says donate an additional $100 automatically on 929. Just in this box right under it. So small, like the text is so small. I'm going to link the article somewhere, but if you scroll through and you see how small this text is, it is hilarious and it is insane. You know, here's another one. Join the president's executive club for true patriots only. Smaller text under. Make this a weekly recurring donation until 11-3. Some of these Trump camp people, join the president's executive club for true patriots only. Absolutely. I'm a true patriot. I'm going to keep that box checked. And they don't even notice that they're donating $500 until, you know, the end of time. Just insanity. Here's, oh, this is another great one. It's just like this scammy language that, that campaigns used. President Trump, congrats, all caps. You've been selected as our end of quarter MVP. Join the cash blitz now and make it official. Donate an additional $100 on 930. Just wild wild that the campaign was able to get away get away from this in so long it's yeah lines of bold text all caps fun words oh this is a really long one really really long let me read this okay this is the all caps final month until election day and we need every patriot stepping up if we're gonna win four more years of president trump he is revitalizing our economy, restoring law and order, and returning us to American greatness. But he's not done yet. This is your chance. Stand with President Trump and maximize your impact now. Smaller text right under. Make this a weekly recurring donation until 11-3. And then right under that one, same box. President Trump, October 9th marks 25 days out from Election Day, and we need your support. American patriots like you inspired me to keep fighting this past week, and I'm not done yet. I'm asking you to join Operation MAGA and help me secure victory in November. Join the movement now. Under it, smaller text, donate an additional $100 on 10-9. Who's going to read all of that? You see that block of text and you're like, oh, it's probably just some legal disclaimer, like some nonsense. I'm just going to like move on, leave a blank, leave it, leave it checked. And they were taking millions of dollars from their own supporters. I I am astonished and just it's it, it's just it, first first of all it's thievery. Second of all it's trickery. It's just it's hilarious. It's absolutely absolutely hilarious that they were able to get away with this. And it's so wildly unethical for a presidential campaign to trick people out of money. Um 
And they had to, re- again, they had to refund 10% of the money that they raised. So they made so much money, and then they had to give all of it back. Because people were like, hey, I did not mean to donate. Like, there was one woman um, who was cited in this article who literally had to get refunded $85,000. $85,000. That is so much money. It is literally so much money. And so, you know, this is... First of all, it's it's a hilarious story, and I hope that you guys got as much of a kick of it, kick out of it as I did, because I think it is so funny. Um, but it's also very interesting from like a technical and campaigning perspective, because we see a lot, even within Democratic campaigns, we see a lot of that, you know, click now and help us, you know, re, you know, join join the chairman's club and um, you know, we need every patriot to to donate to our campaign and blah blah blah. We see a lot of that like sensationalized language in campaign emails and in fundraising. Um and like it has been proven to be effective um in a lot of ways. But at the same time, like is it the most ethical thing in the world to be using that kind of language when you're um trying to raise money from people? Is it authentic? Is it necessarily like the right thing to do? And I am saying this from a you know, a Democratic perspective as well as a Republican perspective um, because I'm, uh, well, the Democrats, I don't think, are scamming their supporters out of millions of dollars. I do think that, like, that kind of culture around that language when you're sending fundraising emails, I'm not sure if it's the most authentic thing in the world, um, which I think, you know, I think the Democrats could stand to be more authentic. And so I hope that is something that we move away from moving forward is, like, not using that kind of language in campaign emails and actually making a real plea and saying, hey, this is what we actually need. This is what we're going to do with your money as opposed to, you know, we need supplies for our office and then just signing the name of the field director because that's just not, everyone can see through that. It's not authentic. It's not good. Um, and of course, leaving the extra fundraising boxes pre-checked, not, not something that should be done ever like literally ever it's so insane and so unethical um so anyway reading the story made me just cackle really made me crazy and uh oh the other amazing just amazing part of the story um is that you know act blue which is the democratic version of the the fundraising platform is a non-profit so whenever they have to refund money to people, they don't keep the extra like processing fee. They also give that back to the person. Because, um, you know, if you're, you donate $10, two of it is the processing fee, whatever. They, they, they give that all back to the person. Win Red, which is the Republican version, as I said, which is the one that like kind of perpetuated the scam, um, is for profit. Which means that they were keeping the processing fee for themselves. Which means the Trump campaign had to refund ten, you know, refund ten percent of the money that they made, and Win Red made so much money off of this, like made so much money off of this scam, which is just, you know, of course, of course they did, of course the Republican fundraising platform scammed all these people out of hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then they got to keep a lot of that money. They they actually profited in the end, which if that's just not an amazing metaphor for the Republican Party. I truly don't know what is. It's just, ooh, it's perfect. It's so fun. Anyway, that's such a great story. It's such a good story. And I am happy that all of the people who, um, you know, deserved refunds got those refunds and that they didn't, like, accidentally, like, steal all of their money. Um, but, you know, it also just shows the continual stranglehold that Donald Trump has over the Republican Party, because a lot of the people that were interviewed in this article said um, that they didn't, they did not blame Donald Trump, they blamed the consultants, and they blamed Win Red, and they blamed, you know, the fundraising department. They, they were like, but, you know, we still support Donald Trump. If I donated to a campaign, if I donated $500 to a campaign and then they took $500 from me every month, I would not continue to support that candidate. I would, I would not support that candidate. I, I would switch registrations. I'm telling you right now that if I ever got scammed out of $500 a month by a Democratic candidate, I would change my registration to independent. It would not happen. I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting that on the record right now. Maybe I'll regret that, but... It is what it is. 
So, you know, I'm going to consider that my insane political story of the week. I'm going a little bit out of order here, but that's it. That's my insane political story of the week. I hope you enjoyed it. So, now, welcome to COVID Corner. We're going to talk about some controversies, love controversies with COVID. When does it... Oh, we're talking, we're talking COVID controversy corner. That's great. We love alliteration. Anyway, so the two things I want to talk about. One I'm just going to touch on, one I'm going to get a little bit more in, in depth in. Um, one is vaccine passports that have been debated heavily um, online and uh, whatever, in op-eds throughout the week. Um, so it's basically the idea that some restaurants, some museums, some places um, will not let you into their institutions if you are not vaccinated. So you're going to have to like carry around a proof of vaccination um, to different places um, if you want to kind of go back out into society. So this is not something that's been implemented in the United States. I doubt it is something that's going to get implemented in the United States because I don't think that any member of the federal government or local governments can can do that um, with it, considering our democracy. But um, people have been arguing it and trying to decide whether or not it's good or it's bad policy. Um, and it's something that they implemented in Israel. And it's been, you know, they've been extremely effective at vaccinations. And they're basically like 100% back um, in person and 100% back ready to go. Um, but they do have this vaccine passport system, um, which some people perceive to be kind of like an authoritarian dictatorship takeover of freedom. Um, and I'm not exactly sure where I stand on this. I think that it is, it's, look, as a student, I'm going to get in, this is my next part, but my, as a student, like we have to prove that we've been vaccinated, um, against certain things to go to college. You know, I had to have the flu vaccine. I had to have the mumps, measles vaccines, whatever they are. Um, and I did have to prove that in order to, you know, go to college in person, which obviously I'm not, but before we were, went online, we had to fill out that form and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I, I, like, I don't think that maybe it's something that we need now. Um, but I would say, like, in the future, it might be important that we see who's vaccinated. Um, and we, I don't know if people should be limited from where they go based on their vaccination, but I think that it's important to maybe have a record of it. Anyway, it's not something that's going to happen in America, so I don't know why everyone's getting their panties in a twist. Um, because there's just simply no way that we're ever going to have a system where people can be limited from going to places based on, you know, if they've been vaccinated. Because, like, we have all the we have this huge anti-vax culture in America that's like not going to go away anytime soon. And as soon as you know someone says, "No, you can't go into this restaurant because you aren't vaccinated," it's just going to cause this firestorm. But this kind of goes right into my next topic, which is mandatory vaccinations for college students. Um, and a lot of colleges have been saying, um, in order to come back in person in the fall, you're going to need to be vaccinated against COVID nineteen. Um, and people are going crazy about this. And first of all, like they're object. Okay, there's two parts of this story. One, should they be vaccinated? Two, like, should it be mandatory? So first of all, in my opinion, yes. I would feel more comfortable if everyone I was going to school with um, in the fall was vaccinated. Um, I, I would feel more comfortable. I think that it would be safer for the entire community, especially, you know, in Washington, D.C., you know, the GW community is, is very big. And if we're introducing all of these new people who aren't vaccinated, you know, what is that going to do to COVID rates? We're going to bring all these people together. What just what is that? What, what impact is that going to have on GW? What impact is that going to have on the larger community? So um, I think that that's important. It would make me feel safer. It would make me feel more comfortable if every GW student was vaccinated. And like I said, you know, we do have to be vaccinated for other things in order to come on campus. Unless we have a, you know, legitimate excuse, we need to have the measles vaccine. We need to have the mumps vaccine, like whatever. I don't even remember what they're all called, but we have to have all of those vaccines in order to come on campus and we need to have proof of it. The other aspect of this, which is why I, I kind of kind of understand the argument of people who are saying that no we can't make it mandatory is that not everybody has access to the vaccine you know personally like I am very lucky that I'm you know able-bodied and I don't have any underlying conditions and um 
you know, I, I do not have a high level of access to the vaccine. I, I always joke that I'm going to be the last person in the continental United States to get vaccinated because there's just like zero reason for me to get the vaccine. But um, so there's a, you know, there's not a way that we can ensure that everybody has access to the vaccine before college starts in the fall. So what my take is, you know, especially, you know, GW, we have GW Hospital right here. If you're going to make vaccinations mandatory for um, college students, guarantee them a vaccine through the school. Say if you have not had access to the vaccine in your home state or your home country, come to campus two weeks early. We will give you free housing for those two weeks. We will make sure that you get vaccinated and that you are immune before the school year starts. And if they're able to to implement those policies, and if, you know, GW has been debating back and forth as to whether or not to mandate vaccines, um, if you are going to mandate vaccines, but also not make it easy for people who don't have access to get access, then it's just backwards. And you're limiting people who, um, you know, might live in a country that does not have unlimited access to vaccines or, you know, is limiting people, you know, a lot of young people don't, are not first in line on the vaccine list and it's hard to get an appointment. So if you make it extremely easy for college students to get the vaccine in at, at your school, at the college, then I think it's perfectly 100% reasonable to mandate that students get the vaccine. But again, it comes down to whether or not the vaccine is available to college students um, and also like the rate of vaccinations for young people um, by the fall. I think like a lot of vaccinations are obviously happening in the next two months as all these states lower their ages from um, 30 to 16. But it's it's deeply, deeply important that these colleges make the vaccine super available to college students before they make it mandatory, even though I do think that they should make it mandatory. Um, they make other vaccines mandatory. Why not make this one mandatory? You know, even at GW, I'm like 90% sure that it's mandatory that you get the flu shot. I'm not sure about that. I'm just kind of saying that. But um, if you have to get the flu shot, you should get the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, and again, I, I've said this 15 times, but make it accessible. Make things accessible and then make them mandatory. Like you can't make it mandatory when not everybody has access to the vaccine. So as a college student and as a GW college student, that is my take on COVID. And that is our COVID corner for the day. Uh, and that also brings me to the end of the episode. So thank you guys for listening. I hope you guys had a great week and I will uh, see you guys next one.